Already hospital facilities have begun to crack under the strain. Major cities in all parts of the country, New York, Los Angeles, report plague victims falling dead in the streets, in their homes, at their work. Colorado Channel, this is a class one emergency. All civilian traffic is barred from streets and highways. Stay in your homes. Stay in your homes. Those found without specific military orders are subject to summary execution. Stay in your homes. Repeat, Conrad Channel. This is a class one emergency. All civilian traffic is barred from streets and highways. And greetings to everyone out there in podcast land who are living out their own stories in this pandemic and also sharing one as I record this. There's a president who won't concede and another president who is carrying on as if everything is normal. But as we know, this is not a normal year. 2020 is far from a normal year. And in that spirit, my guest today is a fellow named Joe Adonitis. Joe is a filmmaker in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts, and Joe's year took an unexpected turn when the pandemic hit. He and a film and video making partner were combining their businesses into one to take a great leap forward into their own futures, make a company together. They got space, studio, and office, got off to a start, and then things halted. The year ended up being very different from the way Joe had imagined. But he's the kind of guy who finds a silver lining, and he had the opportunity to continue a long-term project of his, a filmmaking documentary project that focused on the opioid problem in the Berkshires, Joe's made a couple other films on the topic, short films, and this is just part of what's become, I guess, his life's work. And the time he's put into doing this has given him perspective on how things have changed, gotten better, gotten worse, and the kind of struggles people deal with when they fight addiction. And he also, because of this, had a special insight, I think, to the difference between opioid addictions during what we might call normal times and opioid addictions during a worldwide pandemic, what sort of special struggles rear their ugly heads during a situation like that. The conversation started with Joe telling me about the moment he and his partner realized that this year it wasn't going to go according to plan. And the events that led him to making this documentary in the middle of the pandemic. So one of the benchmarks of kind of combining companies before it was kind of formal uh, on paper was to get a physical space. So we have this new office. It's in Pittsfield. We go in the first time. It's great. We love everybody. We, it's like a co you know, um, you know, cohabitating with other businesses. And the second time we go in, it's off to a good start. We're hearing rumblings that, you know, the governor might shut things down. A construction guy from upstairs 
walks through the office and just starts hollering. They've shut it all down. And he says, no more sports. And in my head, I'm like, well, maybe that's okay. Uh, no more sports is all right. Uh, I don't care about sports so much. I know people do. Uh, but then at that moment, I realized we're not coming back and we never went back to the office. We haven't been back. Uh, we broke our lease, which everyone was cool about. Uh, we went there twice. And kind of then, you know, all the work dried up kind of immediately. And we thought, you know, are we going to transition to something else? You know, can we be one of these cool companies that thinks that they can offer some type of virtual service? Um, fortunately, it did pick up again very shortly after. We only had like about a month of a lull. But that was kind of our introduction to, okay, things are going to be very different. Um, this is a now truly American problem, therefore a global problem. Um, and we're going to try to mosey through it. So that was your attitude for the next few months? That's been my attitude. My attitude's been, uh, how can I tiptoe through this? How can I tiptoe through this? in a way that A, keeps me and my family healthy and fine. And fortunately up till this point, we've been good. Uh, but B, keeps my mind sane. Uh, and it's not always been a pretty picture and I've made compromises and, um, but you know, for my professional work that has to continue, but also I still feel really compelled to continue my creative work because you know, one financially is there, but the other one is more important to me uh, in terms of, you know, being able to be a person and, you know, create work. Um, I think that's the only thing I could really hold on to while we're all just kind of stuck inside watching Netflix every day. So has your, has your, at least your, your merge continued? No, I think uh, the, there's, one major reason that it hasn't continued is because shortly after a lull in business, we have been busier than ever and we just have not had time to really think about it and things are still working. Uh, and in this crazy uncertain times, it's almost like you don't want to touch, you don't want to touch what's working. Uh, so, um, that's where we're at. Uh, do we wish we could be a little more optimal in the way we function? Yeah. But, you know, we're just lucky that, you know, in the, in the business that we're in, it's so in demand right now for someone to have a digital footprint because if you don't, you don't exist. So what kind of people are, are approaching you that have responded to what you just said, the, the importance of, of a digital footprint? I think every type of organization, uh, we, we're getting a kind of a, a varied list of people uh, coming to us, but mostly large organizations having to do with entertainment, um, theater, uh, or museums, educational institutions, obviously connecting with their populations is really important. And uh, something that we've been, we've always had a hand in is public health. And that's kind of, that's been the biggest thing, you know, getting information out to people. Uh, and the stuff that we've been focusing on for years um, has been, you know, work around the opiate crisis uh, and addiction 
issues, especially in the Berkshires. You know, prior to the pandemic, there was a need to push out information all the time. I think we've done an okay job uh, at doing that. But during the pandemic, I think a lot of that has been swept under the rug uh, because w- this society is just overwhelmed. So, you know, it's hard to hear, hey, there's a pandemic, but also remember that there's an opiate crisis. And remember, there's also a problem with class and race in America. Like people are tuning out and it's a very human response, I think. Um, so that, that's been really important that we continue to, to do this work uh, despite those challenges. I think your first, your first film... Was that the the official start of this process for you, or were you doing things prior to that in regard to that topic? I think I would mark that as kind of the official point of entry into my willingness to learn about addiction, my um, my eventual kind of, uh, you know, just being invested into the topic in a way that's more than superficial, uh, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying anyone on the outside of this topic is, you know, anything but sincere, but I really started to get a grasp on, um, what the problem is and how it affects my community and then therefore affects me. You know, um, I moved to North Adams as kind of this artist haven and I, I will be blunt. I think it was just a cool thing. You know, I was in my mid twenties and it's not a lot of money to live here and you can be cool and smoke cigarettes and you know make your art and there's nothing wrong with that and no one should be shamed for that but i immediately was drawn to uh, organizations like nbcc who do amazing community work the civic engagement in north adams is actually i would say superb um and through that i learned you know it's not all it's not all pretty here it's not all great there's some really big issues that we have in this town. And as the city moves forward, you know, in its evolution, whatever that may be, uh, trying to be a cultural hub to kind of develop its personality, I think it's really important that we don't forget that there are people who've always been here and there's a problem that's been here for generations. And that is just not going to get fixed because we have tourist attractions. So that really drew me into doing the work. Um, in meeting people and talking about how addiction had affected their lives um, and how, you know, by, by cl- cl- uh, collecting those stories, understanding how we as uh, a community value or don't value those, those experiences, um, how we think about them or ignore them. And, it, you know, the work is very obvious. I try not to have kind of a an agenda when I go into it, but once you assemble it, the answers are kind of staring you in the face. Well, just to, just to clarify for uh, people who listen to this, you, I guess sometime in the, in the summer, you dove further into this long-term project um, with a new, I guess, iteration of the work and filming of the subject. Yeah. So, um, Prior to the summer, you know, I had made a few other short films that were kind of an echo of the first one in 2016. Um, I had been working with other agencies out in central Massachusetts where I grew up 
Um, and uh, so I was, I kept my fingers kind of like in the, in the pot, trying to stay up, uh, you know, up to date, providing some promotional work for um, these institutions. But uh, in the summer, uh, I was actually approached by Images Cinema. They had an opportunity to work with um, a program called Artists at Work. And Artists at Work actually employs artists to be in creative practice. Um, and the idea is they will employ you for six months. You will work uh, on your your project. Um, and at the end, you will give it to the public for free, mm-hmm. uh, which is an amazing deal. They also provide you health insurance. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's it's a big deal. And at the end, when your contract is up, you can file for unemployment. Wow. Which, you know, back in May, uh, before the stimulus, you know, was kind of up in the air, how are contracted artists going to make a living or collect unemployment? That is a big deal. And it still is. So to be able to, A, have income coming in to focus on a film, which I either you either get partially paid for or never get paid for uh, and B to have the freedom to make the work in the way I want to make it and not be tethered to another organization for better or worse uh, has been an extraordinary gift. Is what you're working on, is it an, is it an expansion of older work or, or are you just sort of forming something that's entirely new, but just built upon what you learned on the older work? I'd say this is just another, you know, I, I try to make, documents instead of films you know it's really hard you know people are like are you a video maker are you a filmmaker i'm like i just make documents i i look at it as i'm collecting perspectives as someone would just be writing it down like a scribe but i you know it becomes kind of more tangible to have it on video and to see people and how they carry themselves through these conversations. Uh, And in that way, it is an expansion on what I've done. But every time I go into it and I do a round of collecting interviews, I try to think about what is a new way to look at this, this problem? What, what, what do I have to learn? And, you know, what I've learned is I still don't know enough. I still don't know half of what's out there. You know, I don't know a fraction, so I have to I have to go ask people. And before I film, you know, the first person I went to talk to was Shirley Edgerton uh, in Pittsfield, and I, you know, I'm thinking she she might have very very little to do with that topic, but I'm asking community leaders what are the needs in the community, what do you see, what are the questions that are not getting asked, what are the problems, are you you know is is everyone equally being represented when we talk about this problem? And absolutely, you know, you get absolutely not. Like, <laughs> and that's why you have to ask it's like, okay, well, why is that? And we can make assumptions on what is, you know, a popular trend and what the narrative is, but like, we have to find out for certain from hearing it from people in this area, what is the problem? What's going on? How are you feeling? You know, what, what is not being, heard in the story. And that's why I get excited about finding out those things. Now, obviously this was different from your earlier efforts at this because of the pandemic. And 
so you know there are multiple places that's going to affect i guess the first might have been um just the nuts and bolts of of putting this together um putting together interviews that that kind of thing yeah i think the biggest thing that i'm not able to do is spend a lot of time with people and in the past i'd like to without a camera ask someone out to get lunch you know maybe meet their family introduce them to mine uh you know spend some time together uh, at a public event or you know it's anything uh you, you have to show up especially when you're not part of a community that you're trying to document you have to be invested and i'm lucky enough that i have a few years doing this that people can look back at my work and go okay I, i'm in that's fine but it's been such a challenge so filming those candid moments uh is almost impossible you know, we can capture interviews in a very sterile environment, uh, lots of stuff outside, but at the end of the day, um, you're not capturing that kind of cinema verite style of, of filmmaking. So what do you do? You know, and that's been my challenge. It's how, how do you, how do you create a scaffolding for these interviews to hang on in a way that's meaningful, but also, um, enjoyable to the audience? So in some ways it's been frustrating, but in, in, in other ways it's, I guess, challenged you to be creative with your engagement. Absolutely. I think, you know, I've walked away for this, for this project, we have about 14 interviews that we've gotten in the Berkshires and there's an additional 10 interviews that we've filmed in central Massachusetts. Um, which may or may not be part of this project. Um, but, you know, there, there's, a, there's a willingness. There's a willingness for people to share. And where there's a will, there's a way. I think where I might go with this and where my research has been is to collect, to, to create juxtaposition of where we were and where we are by going back in time and, you know, looking at, things in popular media about drugs and addiction, how we not, not only look at the, the individual with a substance use disorder, but how we look at the language around addiction, what we classify as a hard drug and what's, what's not. And I think that's an interesting thing to pair with a modern day interview, you know, go, going back in time, something that really struck me in one of the debates, which were, unwatchable, one of the presidential debates, uh, you know, Trump uh, being Trump says uh, to Biden, something about his son Hunter, who has a substance use disorder. And he said it in a way that was very insulting. And Biden turns around and says, I'm proud of my son, that he's gone so far with his recovery. And I think that is just, that is a beautiful idea, you know, that presidential candidate from the times of Bill Clinton saying, I, I smoked it, but I didn't inhale <laughs> all the way to here where it's, you're acknowledging, yeah, my son had a hard time with hard drugs and, you know, I'm proud of him. That that's, that's amazing. You know, juxtapose that with Nancy 
Reagan, just say no. Right. Do you find that that's translated, I guess, down on the street with with actual people? Do you find that that attitude is, is seeped down there? I think, uh, you know, there's there's two ways of coming up against an idea. Uh, one is to, on an analytical level, say, oh, yeah, people with an addiction need help and we should be kind to them. That's very good. And then there's another thing when you see someone who is really in need and you just kind of close your eyes to it. And that person can still be a good person and do that, that you can still have good intentions and be, I cannot look at the problem. I have to look away. Uh, and that's where I am. You know, I sometimes just have to look away. I just can't. Uh, and the people who are truly doing extraordinary work never look away or they rarely look away. And those are the real heroes out there who can't look away almost. And then you think about the people who are dealing with these issues who have a substance use disorder, whether it's alcohol or heroin or cocaine or meth, and like they have no options. Their eyes are open all the time to it. So for us to kind of, the man on the street, how he perceives this issue. And for us to, you know, say, I can't look at this time. That's a comfort thing, you know, and we're talking about comfort versus needs. And I think that's like, that's where, you know, as our American society is not compassionate, that's where it manifests that mm. we choose to look away from suffering. Uh, and that's, that's, that's an idea I like to explore with this work. Have you found in a u- unique way that the pandemic has affected this population just because you're working during it and I'm guessing just as something that's happening to everyone, it must come up. And I'm also guessing that it must, they must have some challenges that um, I can't fathom during this situation something that really shocked me early was when we you know i'm i'm sure you got your stimulus check john uh 1200 smackaroos that's really held me over thank god um (laughs) you know when you get 1200 dollars in the bank it really depends where you are in your life how you're going to use it yes and this is something i've heard from many different agencies, Tapestry, the local EMS, that um, there was a portion of people in recovery who, when they got $1,200 in the mail uh, after maybe being unemployed or laid off because of the pandemic, isolated, not able to attend meetings, just kind of by themselves, and then $1,200 shows up, the relapse, uh, the chance of relapse went through the roof and many people when they were handed that government support, uh, which we all got, you know, ended up using it to purchase, uh, narcotics and it had fatal consequences. Mm. Uh, and that is something that I think, I don't know. I, I definitely didn't anticipate maybe, maybe other people who are smarter than me did. But it, that is shocking. You know, um, it makes sense. You know, I talked to an individual, his name's Alex, 
Uh, and he was telling me about his experience and he says, when you are living like you, you know, I, for lack of a better term and my apologies, if, when you're living like an addict, uh, you become, you revert back to old behavior and, you know, you lose your job, you start letting the house get messy, you feel isolated, you feel depressed. That's why I was stack that up with your your constant um, regulation of your behavior, you know, away from substances through your recovery, that just, yes, just hits you over and over again. And I think that that created a very, very tough situation for a lot of people. Um, overdoses in 40 states out of 50 have gone up since March. Uh, we had a hu huge spike in April. I, I believe it was April, May. Um, the numbers are still coming in. They kind of are slow to be counted, but that's a big deal. Um, and the other issue is that a lot of people who overdose don't want to go to the hospital. Um, hmm. thankfully, thankfully, we have Narcan, which is a tremendous tool to uh, reverse an overdose. But the consequence of people reversing overdoses um, for someone who that's not EMS, that's not a police officer or firefighter. Sometimes you have your overdose reversed and you don't go to the hospital and people are afraid to go. They're afraid, they're afraid to go because of, um, legal problems or they're afraid to go because their immune system is compromised because of, because of their addiction and they don't want to go to a hospital where there's COVID. So it's, there's an invisible element to this that w whatever we're counting is probably way worse because of that. And you also mentioned, this is something that hadn't occurred to me, uh, the people not going to support meetings. And um, it occurred to me there must have been a, when you said that, there must have been a, a massive displacement for people who did have support meetings and as the pandemic started, couldn't go to them anymore and, and lost their support. That's a big problem. Uh, luckily, the uh, recovery community, uh, AA, NA, had, took a while, but they shifted to online forums to do that. And some people actually found it better, you know, which is also unexpected that people thought, hey, I can go to more meetings. I can do this kind of at my own convenience. You can do a meeting with people who are in the other side of the country at any time of the day. You know, if you need to go, it's nine o'clock, it's, it's five o'clock somewhere else, you know, and there's a meeting and you can just log in. Now the problem because becomes not everyone has a computer or cell phone and not everyone has a reliable internet service. So there is still people who are like, I would rather be in a physical meeting, but the way that, you know, the people in recovery are still inventive and, you know, they improvise just like everyone else and they just jumped on the technology. And in some ways it's been a fantastic resource. Um, one of the recovery, um, recovery, uh, centers that I work with, uh, in Gardner, Massachusetts, Alyssa's place went digital, then they went hybrid. Um, they have their space open right now, but you know, depending on how COVID affects Massachusetts in the next 
few weeks, they may close down again, but to have that infrastructure there is important. And I think people are doing the best they can with it. And I like, I like to see that. Right. But what about for you? Um, just being out and about during this, it's not that I don't imagine you, you take precautions or anything like that, but it, it can take a, a, an emotional toll on a person. On one hand, your subject matter is heavy and obviously affects you on that level anyhow. And then there's the situation where you're just out nowadays can can do that. How do you cope? Uh, I don't I, I don't know. I try to I try to bury myself in my priorities, I think. You know, I luckily have always been an introvert and so is my wife. So we, you know, we joked around in the beginning, this is great. No social obligations. Ha ha ha. But that obviously doesn't hold very true when we think about visiting our parents or my grandmother. Um, you know, that's very sad. Um, yeah. So in terms of work, when we're out and about, it's, I'm, I'm constantly scared. You know, I'm, a, I'm afraid all the time. You know, I don't want to get anyone sick. I don't want to become sick. I don't want to, I don't want to make the problem worse. Um, so I measure that every time. And it's just like another layer of pre-production to think about how often am I going to be able to wash my hands in this location? Who is going to be there? Is the place open? Are we going to be outside? Is it going to rain? Is that going to force us inside? What is everyone's attitude towards wearing a mask? You know, and I'm happy to do that work. I will, you know, if it takes me an extra two hours a day, I don't care. Um, you know, we, a friend of mine had a COVID scare a few months ago and turned out it was fine. He got tested and he was really nervous and he was talking to the, the testing people and they go, that you were like three people removed from this person. You probably are fine. But guess what? You probably already came in contact with someone at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. You probably already came with someone in contact at the post office. It's inevitable. Like it's out there. And at a certain point I can lock myself up. But that one time I go to the grocery store, you know, I might touch the carton of milk that gets me sick. I don't know if that's how it works, but that's where my mind is. Right. And that's scary, you know. And take it into into the situation that you're describing of people who, who are compromised with their immune system through their addictions, that adds another layer of just fear of the world, I'm, I'm guessing, for them. Yeah, I, I mean, it really depends on where someone is uh, in their recovery. Uh, you know, if someone who is an alcoholic has been uh, experiencing sobriety, contented sobriety for many years, maybe they're less likely to have a, you know, a compromised immune system. Someone who is fresh into recovery for three months, I would assume uh, from my, what I've learned uh, that is, that's an individual who shouldn't get sick. Um, no one should get sick, but especially if you, your body is rebuilding itself and your brain is rebuilding itself. So I think about that all the time. My nightmare would be to, you know, have to call someone and say, guess what? I got sick and you are now very ill, more ill than I am. Um, 
that would be very hard. Uh, my wife's brother was in, he lives in New York, uh, in the city, and he was in the hospitals for six weeks. Uh, uh, you know, and he had two roommates in his hospital suite thing, and they both died. Mm. They both died. And he, it took him, you know, months after to be able to move around without oxygen. He wasn't in the best of health to begin with, and he's much older than my wife, but he had a really hard time and to every day kind of check in on his progress definitely kept it in the forefront of our minds now you you said you had six it was a six month project which means you're a little more than halfway through it is that right yeah i think we're kind of the two-third mark ish yeah so i mean right now you're obviously just looking to the end, you know, working your way and, and doing that. Um, but do you have any, any kind of indication of once you're done with this and you've presented it, what you could possibly do next that would be as meaningful for you? Uh, I think, I think what I would like to happen is by the end of the year to have a document created from the six months of research and interviewing and filming. I, I like to, you know, I've, I've come up with this idea of, you know, it being a document rather than a film, because I think as I expose myself more to the work, I want to learn new things about it and I want to show you know, I want to show those things through the film. And, you know, in that way, it's always going to be this fluid thing where I don't know if it's that, you know, where the end point is, you know, I, I feel like in my connections and my relationships professionally and personally to this topic, you know, I, I, how could I stop, you know, um, there's a, there's a famous phrase, art isn't finished, it's abandoned. And um, for now, I think I'll just keep pushing through even after this kind of due date for artists at work. Um, you know, in some ways that has bolstered my ability to keep going even after the financial support is finished. You know, I might just keep trucking, you know. And thank you so much to Joe Adonitis for taking the time to talk about his project. You can find Joe online. He's at greatsky.media. And that will tell you a lot about what he does for a living and also about his films. Music, as always, provided by The Mighty Adam. You can find them at destroythemightyadam.bandcamp.com. And John Seven, that's me, can be found at john7.me. You can read all sorts of things that I've written there, and you can even give to my Patreon if you want to help support this program. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.